And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I'm Harmony. I'm Maggie. And we are Rebel Girls Book Club, and we're here today reading chapters 15 through 30 of Little Woman. I wrote down some summary notes for what happens in these uh, 15 chapters, and I guess I'll go through them if that's okay with Mags. Yeah, do it up, dude. All right. So in these 15 chapters, the mom of the little woman has to go away to go take care of the father. Beth starts getting sick. Brooke attends the girl's father. So he's away playing nice with, you know, Meg's mom and dad doing some some schmoozing. Uh, We start to see Lori start acting as Amy's protector. They kind of get closer because Amy has to go stay with Aunt March because Beth gets sick. And they don't want Amy, who is young and has never had the sickness and so isn't immune to get sick. So she goes to stay with Aunt March and she's really sad about it because, you know, her mom's gone, her dad is sick, and Beth is now sick. And she's all alone with this like grumpy old lady who has all these crazy rules. And Lori's really seeing her every day and like entertaining her and being kind of a really great big brother role. Lori and Joe have a hot kissing scene that's really interesting that we'll delve into later. And then Beth starts to get better around Christmas time and the father returns. Yay! And then Meg decides that she likes John because Aunt March is rude, essentially. Harmony, that's a, I think the most intense summary we've ever had on this show so far. And I'm like, I'm into it. You really broke it down for the people what happened. For the people, you know? I got really into this one. Where do you want to start with all of this then? I had some thoughts and feelings, but I want to hear about your thoughts and feelings. They're probably a lot nicer than mine. <laughs> Oh, I kind of want to hear about your mean thoughts and feelings. I think that I had some trouble on page 190 when Joe is really sad that it's like in dark days. On that chapter, Joe starts mm-hmm. getting sad about uh, about Beth being sick. And so she starts to she starts to say, let's see. It does seem as if all the troubles came in a heap, and I got the heaviest part on my shoulders, sighed Joe, spreading her wet handkerchief over her knees to dry. Does it make pool fair? asked Lori, looking indignant. Oh yes, she tries to, but she can't love Bethy as I do, and she won't miss her as I shall. Beth is my conscience, and I can't give her up. I can't, I can't. So I wanted to talk to you about that, because... Both Meg and Joe have kind of like their pet sisters. You know, Meg has Amy and Joe has Beth. And it seems kind of possessive and maybe a little bit like belittling of everyone else's relationship. Joe's reaction here. It it reminds me a lot of when we were freshmen in college. We had a lot of older friends. And I know that Kate and I, in particular, made friends with some senior girls who dubbed us their mini-me's. And I just... 
I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. Like that weird possessiveness that Joe seems to have with her relationship with Beth. Is possessive the right word even? I don't know. I think that it's probably the closest where we're going to find. I also picked up on that this entire time, especially because it gets juxtaposed later with Amy's kind of general panic, I would say, about the fact that Meg is pulling away from the family. Joe feels that too. And I, I think that it's interesting. I think that Joe's reaction to things really kind of throws me sometimes because she gets so deeply emotional that she comes off as being possessive like that, if that makes sense. And I think it's kind of hard to parse out because I I think on the one hand, like within families, I think probably especially big families, people are closer to other people, you know? But then at the same time, it's hard to figure out why Joe is being so uncharitable. Like, I think that the part that troubles me here is the implication that, like, the other girls aren't gonna miss Beth when it's like, dude, shut the fuck up. If she dies, of course they're all gonna fucking miss her, you know? Like, you don't get some special extra sister claim just because you guys, like, understand each other. That's the part that troubles me. Yeah, and I also think, too, that maybe it reminds me of, like, you know that how some people get about the title best friend, where, like, you can only have one? Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that sort of possessiveness, as in, like, I have many best friends, and I'm not, I don't have the same relationship with all of them, but that doesn't mean that they're any less important to me, just because they may not appear as close, just because I don't talk to them every day as I may with another friend, does not mean that those people aren't equally as important to me. And I kind of feel like it's a similar sort of thing here. You're right, like maybe they do under, quote unquote, understand each other better, but that it just seems to really diminish the relationship that like Amy and Beth might have, or Megan and Beth. I mean, everyone has a great relationship with Beth because she's beautiful and sweet and adorable. I think that something that runs deeper here that I feel like runs throughout the entire, especially this first half of the novel, is that Joe really deeply feels the destabilization of her family from the moment, from the moment that her father leaves. Like she feels a lot of pressure to step up and be quote unquote, the man of the family. And I think that that really kind of weighs on her in ways that we don't necessarily see until we see her reaction to other things like she is so upset when marmy has to go away and then beth gets sick and she's just so deeply distraught by this in a way that the other girls aren't necessarily seeming to emote in the same way and then we learn that meg gets married and she like freaks out about that a little bit because like she's gonna be leaving the house and like it's i think that for joe a lot of it is like this idea of the destabilization of this family unit that she holds really dear but when you put it in the context as well of the oldest children meg i think really meg and joe are really the only ones that like remember what family life was like before you know they're the two oldest And I think that going off something we talked about last episode, Meg's kind of understanding of the destabilization of their family and the changing of their family circumstances materializes by becoming more materialistic and like she's more concerned about being ladylike and how she's being presented and then joe on the other hand creates this really emotional reaction where she's super just deeply invested in 
all members of her family in very different ways. And she feels, I think, very keenly that just like the change of circumstances, you know, no matter what those circumstances are, I think she just feels very like, oh my God, what the fuck is happening? Kind of all the time, but then also feels like she can't always show it, I don't think. Yes, I would think that's very accurate because I think to a certain extent, Joe has, I mean, Joe does, Joe has a really strange relationship with femininity and I think that if she were showing her emotions in a more typical or girly way she would see that as weakness and we we have several scenes in which she feels strange for crying or she insists upon not crying but to go back to your point about the destabilization of the family unit a few chapters later on chapter 20 in my book it's page 207 if the chapter is called Confidential, that's when we first start to see Joe and Mrs. March talk about how essentially Mrs. March knows that Brooke and Meg are going to get together and how Joe starts to realize that Meg is falling in love. And I guess this kind of relates to our distaste for femininity too, because Joe just absolutely hates romance. She hates romance all throughout this book, but she's really adamant about it here, about Meg becoming silly. But it's 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 really because... She's worried that Brooke is going to take Meg away from her. And if Meg is going to be taken away from her, she wants Meg taken away by someone who has a ton of money and who can give Meg the best life possible. And I don't know, that also just really struck me. Yeah, and I think that also something, because she wants, it's been a little while since I read this part, but she, she kind of wants Meg to marry Lori, doesn't she? Yes, that's what she says. So I think that also, though, that plays again into the whole destabilization of the family, because it's not even just that she wants Meg to marry someone who has a lot of money. She ultimately wants Meg to marry someone who is in many ways already part of their family, right? Like, she wouldn't really be taken away, right, if she marries Lori, because they would probably live really close. And Lori is already an integrated part of how they function together as more than sisters, as friends, you know, he's already there. So I think that, yes, for one, the money thing definitely does play into it with that destabilization. But I think also Lori is less threatening because he's much more of a known entity to not just Joe, but to everyone than Brooke is, you know? I didn't even pick up on that before, but that's a great point. I also think that she wants them to marry because then it will kind of take Lori off her hands because I do think that there's evidence that Joe has some feelings for Lori that are kind of romantic, but she just does not want to engage in that at all. And this is where that link comes in that I talked about earlier. I found a Mental Floss article, which I will link to in the show notes. But there are also a bunch of other articles where I've seen this about how Louisa May Alcott never married and Joe is based off of her. But also she didn't want Joe and Lori to end up together because it was too romantic. And apparently Lori is based off of someone who she did have a short romance with. Oh! Which I just thought was super, super interesting because I had a ton of questions about Joe's sexuality and maybe she was asexual, maybe she was gay. Yeah, I don't know. I think because she's so abhorrent towards romance. (laughs) Yeah. So, I don't know, does that change your reading of it at all? I mean, yes. I mean, I guess yes and no, because, like, I always, I agree with your, I guess, very first statement there, which is that I always kind of thought that there was, like, 
you know, something low-key going on between Joe and Lori. And, like, at the very least, I think, again, touching on what we talked about last time, right? Like, in many ways, Joe and Lori have a special relationship. We talked about the way in which Joe kind of becomes his keeper and, like, the ethics kind of around that and stuff. But at the very, very least, Joe and Lori have something that Lori does not have with the rest of the Mark sisters. So, like, I think that I could also see see a little bit of that in there as well. But I don't know. I don't know. I'm just really very blown away and interested more now about we talked about this last time too, but just like more about Alcott's biography. But I feel like something I've noticed, and I haven't like studied this phenomenon necessarily as I have some of the other things that we've talked about recently. So like, this is just me kind of bullshitting. But I feel like something I've noticed recently is that like, uh, during this time period, it was really kind of okay and encouraged to have autobiographical information in your novels. And like, there was a there was a huge marrying, I feel of like your personal life and personal experiences, and your novel writing. Whereas I feel like now today in contemporary literature, a lot of the time it's like, yeah, you get the advice, quote unquote, write what you know, but autobiographical fiction is very much not in vogue anymore. And it always I think I sometimes forget that because as much as I love this time period and read a lot of work from it, I do primarily, I would say, read work that's written in a more contemporary time. I always forget then sometimes when I go back to read something like Little Woman to look for those clues. So like, I'm really, I'm into what you, uh, what you just dug up there with mental floss. Yeah, that's really interesting too. Kind of to go off your tangent, I would just like to, I've noticed the same thing. And I also think that, yeah, at least in contemporary times, I feel like women get a lot more flack for supposedly including autobiographical information within their books. Oh, interesting. I don't know. Is that something that you've noticed? I feel like that's a stereotype that we have for women writers. See, I think that that's true. But then I also think that something that we contend with a little bit more in the contemporary time that we haven't necessarily previously, just because as a society, we are slowly but hopefully surely becoming better people and like more kind of I feel like woke is the wrong word to use here but it's the only one I can really think of but in 2020 (laughs) but like I think that there's also a move away from that because there's lots of authors who write about characters who have beliefs in the world that are legitimate and present because there are still people who believe that X kind of human aren't real human beings, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that part of that pull away to me, I see it more of an author distancing themselves from what their characters believe. But I think that I could see it as also being kind of like a a lot of female writers get flack for that too. I just don't think I was thinking of it in that context. I think a lot of the way I've seen it has been more like my beliefs as a writer are not the beliefs of my characters and like you can't conflate the two because I'm writing fiction for a reason right like even if it's contemporary fiction even if it's based off the real world these people don't necessarily represent what I think yeah that's fair I think where I've seen it most has been in like mostly fan fiction communities or romance communities or any sort of young adult community like communities that don't get respected very much anyway And that they do tend to all lean more towards, they're all gendered communities too, and have more female authors. So it could be a correlation, not causation thing. But the point is, something's not getting respected. And 
It has something to do with gender, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. That was a tangent, though. But I do think that it's important to, to remember for not just you and me as we continue to talk about these books, but also just people who are also reading Little Woman with us or anything to just like... Sometimes it's a fun Easter egg hunt to like look for all those clues, right? To be able to like connect back to biography. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Speaking of biography, you brought up last episode that our narrator likes to delve into first person. And I noticed at least three instant, well, I think it was three. It was three or two instances in which she delved into first person during uh, this reading, these 15 chapters. Yes, I wasn't crazy. It does, in fact, exist in this book. It happens a bunch, actually. But I wonder, too, while I was looking at that Mental Floss uh, article, uh, Alcott published this book within, it was serialized within newspapers and stuff, and mm -hmm. her writers often wrote into her, and that's why some of the choices that she made at the end of the book end up happening, apparently. Like, she did not want to make certain choices, and I'm not going to go ahead and say them in case somebody hasn't read this book. Yeah. We'll talk about it next episode. But, yeah, I don't know. I think that there's maybe some conversation happening there with the writers. And I'm wondering, too, we'll, we'll touch upon it. I want to touch upon that again, but it, it's maybe we'll talk about it later. <laughs> the important point for now is that it is true that like in the craft there's something weird going on here but I agree with you because I've started to you know read our part three section for this that I think it might be more relevant to delve into why it happened in the third part but yeah it is true in the craft here we do see the narrator kind of breaking its third person kind of omniscient thing and like inserting its own opinion I just I think I wonder now having read some background about Alcott and her own opinions I feel more inclined to view what she's writing in a critical way and maybe to question whether or not her beliefs actually match the morals that are set out for us in this book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For 100% sure. And I mean, I think even before that research, we were kind of touching upon this a little bit last week as well with the idea of like, little woman. Oh, no, you know what? It wasn't in that episode. It was in it was in our Anne of Green Gables episode. We talked about it a little bit, and I think that that episode will in fact be out by the time this episode comes out. So it's okay to talk about, yeah, yes, yeah, okay, yeah. So we talked a little bit about the idea of like uh, what morals you're getting out of books and stuff, and how in Anne of Green Gables there was some discussion with our friend Kate about which almost had the most moralistic outcome because Anne of Green Gables is a little bit vague, but like, honestly, the more I reread Little Woman, so is Little Woman, you know, like there's just so much going on and it feels like almost each character ends up with a different moral of the story, if that makes sense, which I actually, one of the few things I do appreciate about this book is the fact that each character kind of comes out with their own moral to the story because it just makes them seem more realistic. And I think that that's important. And I think that's something else that's important that we were able to touch upon in our first Little Woman episode is that by the end of chapter 15, I feel like you do start to see them being less as caricatures, right? The four March sisters and more as real characters. And I feel like in these 15 chapters, the caricatureness has completely gone away. Would you agree? Yeah. Not completely, but a, but a lot. No, yeah, I agree. Because I think that they're all developing as real, quote unquote, little woman. Yeah. Like they're, all, they're all developing their own personalities and they're not kids anymore. And the book does a lot to show us how much they've changed and are yeah, yeah. 
yeah, the book does more to show us how less one-dimensional they are as a part of their growing up. Should we talk a little bit about Amy getting the ring as a symbol for morality? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Here we go. Okay, so I felt so conflicted about the fact that, I don't know, I, I don't remember the Amy scene as much, Her that chapter with her going to Aunt March's and being super miserable. But essentially, she goes to Aunt March, she's super miserable, she starts becoming really religious, which is interesting, but like in yeah. a little kid way, it's not a super deep way. And at the end of it, she ends up, <clears throat> excuse me, she ends up getting a special ring for essentially being such like a good girl and being a proper little lady while she's with Aunt March. Which I think is especially important because it was kind of put in juxtaposition to the way that Joe had been behaving. Continue. Yes, yes, yes. So what do you think about that? Like the ring as a, it's just weird because this book is so anti-materialistic in a lot of ways. Can you, uh, it's on page 206. I'm having a hard time finding it in my Kindle edition. Would you mind reading a little passage from, from there? She's just talking to her mom about it. Let's see. As Amy pointed to the smiling Christ child on his mother's knee, Mrs. March saw something on the lifted hand that made her smile. She said nothing, but Amy understood the look, and after a minute's pause, she added gravely, I wanted to speak to you about this, but I forgot it. Aunt gave me the ring today. She called me to her and kissed me and put it on my finger and said I was a credit to her. She'd like to keep me always. She gave that funny guard to keep the turquoise on, as it's too big. I'd like to wear them. Mother, can I? And her mother says no, essentially. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't know, it's interesting because it's a symbol for morality, but it's, I think a place where I feel conflicted about this is that, like, Aunt March ends up favoring Amy in this moment, but she also really does like Joe, and she likes Joe's company, and a lot of the reasons she likes Joe's company are for the complete opposite reasons of the why she likes the way Amy's become. So, like, I... I don't know. I think that I feel super conflicted about it. Uh, you had in our notes about Amy's relationship to God and if it's her way with dealing with grief. I kind of thought that that was kind of how I read it was that, you know, her one of her older sisters is dying or they think that she's dying. And I think it makes sense, especially in a place where you feel very friendless. Because at, at first she did. She did not like being, as we've said, at Aunt March's house. I think that reading makes sense, but then it also makes it also makes me wonder what Aunt March's motivations are. Is it that she's actually trying to say that Amy's like the way Amy's behaving is better or more moralistic than Joe, or is it Aunt March being able to kind of support in her own little way what both girls are going through at the moment? In which that like she does support Joe in a lot of ways and being like outspoken and ridiculous and like gives her access to the library and stuff and like doesn't always or even usually try and stop her from that. And like Joe and Aunt March do have a weirdly like kind of good relationship. And then on the other hand, like Amy's having a really bad time with Aunt March. And so Aunt March is able to almost give her a directive and then is able to give her a reward for meeting that directive. I don't know if that's too big of a stretch, but like, I feel conflicted about the whole thing because it just doesn't make sense to me. And I'm trying to like make sense of it from a human perspective. I think a lot of what I got out of these 15 chapters is 
all of the girls' growth. And we see that essentially, we see that come to a head when when May gets married, right? Like, because that's her ultimate growth. Now she is a woman because she has married a man. And I think that Aunt March appreciates Joe in part because Joe is a child. Like, they're all still children at the beginning of the book. Yeah. Amy, however, and we'll see this after the time jump especially, but Amy is really becoming a little adult and like how a quote unquote proper lady should be. And Joe, by the end of this section, these 15 chapters has not run a wild. Yeah. She's running wild. I mean, kind of. Yeah. She's not at all becoming what a a woman. At least by Aunt March's standards, probably. Yeah. So, and and the ring is important too, because that it's a grown up thing. Like her mother doesn't want her to wear it because it's too grown up for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Amy's not ready for that grown upness yet. So I think it's also maybe I was wrong to call it a symbol of morality, and maybe it's more like a symbol of womanhood. Ooh, you know, I think that it's kind of both though, because I think that part of growing up is discovering your own brand of morality, whatever that ends up being, which I mean, obviously in this time is kind of supposed to be the Christian religion that's being subscribed to at this moment, especially given the fact that, you know, they have a reverend pastor, father, I don't know the appropriate terminology given their specific sect of Christianity, but like they have, they have a religious leader as a father, essentially, you know? So like, I think that it's both because I think that also going off of your point, like when you're a kid, you're allowed to make mistakes and you're like allowed to be kind of immoral sometimes. Cause even at this time period, they understand to a certain extent that like kids are developing all of those things. Like you don't just come out of the womb ready to go good person, you know, like you have to develop all of that. So I think, I think that I would agree with that, but I would say that morality and womanhood are probably in that way intertwined in the sense of you as an adult are generally expected to have a pretty full sense of what your like morality is and what your religious sensibilities are, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so I think it's probably a little bit of both, you know? Yeah, I agree. Okay. Yeah. It was just interesting to me, but I think that it also plays back to your point that you talked about earlier about each of the girls developing their own morals. And this seems to be like, that is a sign of morality for Amy's morals. If she is good, good things will come. And that's okay. It seems (laughs) by the book standards for Amy, maybe not for all of the girls, but for Amy, that is okay. Yeah, for sure. And I think also that plays into the chapter where she makes her will as well. Like, this is a kid who is, like... Oh, yeah! Who is, like, genuinely really terrified, I think, and does need some directive, you know? I know that sounds weird, but, like, when you're dealing with the idea of profound grief at a young age, I think that, like, it's normal to be grasping at things because like it doesn't I think especially when you're as young as Amy is in this section it is it's not just oh my god my sister might die it then also becomes a realization of the fact that you too will die eventually you know so to me it makes extra sense that like her morality becomes so entied with religion because religion's like well it's okay if you die right because like you're gonna if you're a good person then you're gonna go to heaven and it like I think it becomes the double whammy of comfort right because it's and especially probably I would think 
I haven't even thought about this before, but probably also given the fact that like Beth is always described as being the good one, right? So like even if Beth dies, she's definitely going to go to heaven, I would imagine, in Amy's brain. So all all of it ends up, I think, playing together into the psyche of like what happens when you just kind of experience or like are preparing to experience because Beth does not die at this portion of the book. Um but, like, when you're preparing to experience profound grief for the first time, and then it also makes you realize that, like, one day you're also going to die for the first time, all of it, I think, intertwines together. And I think also, not necessarily with womanhood, ne- or maybe maybe more intertwined with womanhood than I'm initially thinking, but, like, think that the realization that you're going to die one day is really, like, one of those markers of you're no longer so much of a child anymore, and, like, really coming into adulthood. So I think that that idea of the ring too then becomes even more important as a symbol of womanhood and the reason i backtracked on what i said about the woman thing was just like at this time right like women are likely to die younger just because they're likely to die in childbirth and stuff like that so like i know sad tears but and still are in the u.s by the way we have a very high mortality rate for childbirth it's true we have a one of the lowest infant morality rates or infant mortality rates in the world but one of the highest in level four countries so or for mothers so put that in your hat the more you know (laughs) my company does work on that yeah i actually i know all the facts about that one but i should not dive into that here that's a that's a different podcast (laughs) for a different time relating to my job (laughs) uh but yeah, you know, so like I probably in that sense, even girls at that time probably have to come to that realization younger than boys do, right? Because it's just more likely to happen to you with shitty medicine and pushing things out of your body, you know? Yes. Wow, that was a huge change. I'm gonna have to edit the hell out of that. There was points in there somewhere. You're okay. You don't have to do all this editing by yourself. You're all good. <laughs> do you want to talk about the kiss? Can we talk about the kiss? Yes, I'm ready. I am ready now to talk about the kiss. I just didn't want to miss that. I thought it was important. No, it's very important. I agree. I think I love Amy's development. I do too. All right. Take me to the kiss. (laughs) All right. All right. Let me, let me see where it is. Oh, it's 191. Okay. It's right after. What chapter is it in? So it's Dark Days. It's actually right after she's talking to Lori about Meg. So Lori is telling her that something he's, he's talking about, oh, he got a telegraph from her mother and apparently mom is coming home and Joe is just delighted. So Joe grew quite white, flew out of her chair, and the moment he stopped speaking, she electrified him by throwing her arms around his neck and crying out with a joyful cry, Oh, Lori, oh, mother, I am so glad. She did not weep again, but laughed hysterically and trembled and clung to her friend as if she was a little bewildered by the sudden news. Lori, though decidedly amazed, behaved with great presence of mind. He patted her back soothingly and finding that she was recovering, followed it up by a bashful kiss or two, which brought Joe round at once. I just, essentially, Joe is, like, not cool with Lori having kissed her. And she's she's talking about how it's dreadful and um, she couldn't help but flying at him because of the good news and not to give her wine because it makes her act badly. And Lori's like, oh, I didn't mind it. <laughs> That's what happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I'm back. Oh, what did you make of that? <laughs> uh, it just felt weird. I don't know. The whole thing was just 
weird. <laughs> That's how I felt about it. But, like, I don't know why I felt weird about it. I mean, I think, for one, the, like, implication that, like, Joe felt not herself because of the wine is, like, really very, like, oh, my God. But then also the fact that, like, it's implied that Lori has great presence of mind to kiss her. And then also I think that the word bashful there is really important because, like, it implies a lot of things. The first, that he was nervous to do it. The second, that he had probably been anticipating doing it for a long time. The third being that he didn't know how she was going to react. You know, like, the list goes on, which I think very much paints Lori as not being the villain for having kissed her, you know? Like, I don't think that that was what it was supposed to be. And I think also what makes me sad about it is that, like, for Joe, to me, it seems like there's a great sense of shame about anything romance. Like, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with Lori. It just seems like, I don't know. To me, it just, like, her reaction to the whole thing reads as, like, her feeling kind of ashamed about the idea that she could even be read almost as a romantic person. Or, like, be interested in that or anything. Um, I don't know. I have too many thoughts. No, I get that. I think, so I had a very different reading of it the second time than I did the first time. The first time I read it a lot like you, and I think that's probably a more accurate reading. But the second time, I just really feel for Lori, and I did kind of find it a little romantic. I don't know if that was just like me really wanting to put a romantic spin on it, but it is weird. It's hard. (sighs) It's weird because Lori, throughout this book, continually makes advances at Joe. And Joe's continually like, look, I just like you as a friend. Can we just be friends? Like, I love you, but it's as a friend. Yeah. I think, I think I agree with you though, though. Like, I do feel, I think a smidge bad for Lori because like, he does clearly just care for her. And I think the hard thing about it is that, especially because we're not in Joe's head, is that it's really difficult to tell from the way it's written whether she actually doesn't like him like that or if she feels like she can't or isn't supposed to for whatever reason. Or, you know, like she feels like she shouldn't be the romantic one or that she has to focus on her career or whatever, which I mean is all like very modern sensibilities, but I think really kind of comes up here as well. And I think also what's important to think is that while Laurie has that silly reaction of being like, I don't mind, you know, like, I think for the most part, Laurie really does respect Joe's boundaries, even to the point where Alcott does make it clear that like, he did not kiss her directly in the moment. It specifically says that finding that she was recovering decided to kiss her. Like, he didn't do it to take advantage of her emotional state, you know? Like, it was, I I think that he is res- as respectful as possible with her and her emotional boundaries, at the very least, most of the time, you know? Yeah. Not to say he doesn't make mistakes, because I think he does, and I do agree with you that there is kind of a weird back and forth between the two of them, where eventually it's like, Lori Brad, you need to, like, give up if this is what she keeps saying yes. to you. But, like... He doesn't typically push her past her limits. Yes. And this, it's, it's hard in this scene too, because you're right. Like he did, he did wait until she calmed down. And then it says that he gave her a kiss or two. Yeah. And she pushes him away gently. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, so I had read this right after reading about Alcott's uh, person that she based Lori off of the second time when I read it. And I'm like thinking of an old like romance movie. And that's what gave me 
all of the feelings. But initially, my text reading was similar to yours, where it was like, this is just a sad situation. And like, I feel bad for Joe and for Lori, because he loves Joe, supposedly. But like, it's, yeah, I don't know. Consent is weird, man. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it is. And I think it's probably especially weird reading it in this modern context, because she could have pushed him away gently just because I think especially with this time period with this kind of book to say that she did otherwise probably would have been kind of bold and sort of an affront, especially because he's kind of the hero of the situation and stuff. So like, it's hard to know. Although Joe does, she is rough with Lori, like she does hit him and she does push True. him away and like, does make fun of him earlier in last section when uh, he admitted at camp that he would prefer Joe to all the other girls. She made fun of him for that. And that had yeah, romantic subcontext, I think. I think it does too, but I think that it's a little bit different here because this is the one of the first times where he's he's the deliverer of really good news here. And I think it paints him more in a kind of adult light, whereas the other stuff was still a lot more, I think, I don't want to say childish as in like not valid, but I think that this is one of the shifts where we start to see them become more adults. Because as much as Lori has, as you're saying, admitted previously, like verbally to kind of his feelings for Joe, this is the first time, at least as far as I remember in the book, that he's ever tried to physically act on it in any way. It might be the only time. Yeah. So like, to me, it just feels a little bit more like a, a little bit more of a turning point, you know? Yeah. Okay. Do we have anything else we want to say about this, this scene? No, I'm all good. All right. Can we talk about John and Meg? Yeah. Oh, well, it's on page 210 for me. <laughs> so to go back, Joe's like talking to her mom. She doesn't want Meg to leave. Her mom is like, I'm not ready for Meg to leave yet either. She can't marry until she's this age, but it's probably going to happen. And Meg comes in and the mother says, let's see, on 210. Do you call him John? Asked Meg, smiling, with her innocent eyes looking down into her mother's. Yes, he has been like a son to us and we are very fond of him, replied Mrs. March, returning the look with a keen one. I'm glad of that. He is so lonely. Good night, mother dear. It is so inexpressibly comfortable to have you here, was Meg's answer. The kiss her mother gave her was a very tender one, and as she went away, Mrs. March said, with a mixture of satisfaction and regret, she does not love John yet, but will soon learn to. So what do you make of that? That sentence there about not loving John yet, but we'll learn to. I have always read it sort of as kind of like a kind of mother's intuition thing, but also as also like a mother knowing more than Meg trying to let on thing. Because the thing is, is that like, I think it's pretty clear up to this point that like Meg has a pretty serious crush on John, even if she's not necessarily admitting it to herself or anyone else. And to me, I kind of read it more as like, uh, she's not a woman yet. Like she does not love him deeply, but like we're kind of on that precipice. Okay. That makes sense to me. I think that was confusing to me um, throughout the entire book that concept of not loving someone, even though you definitely are infatuated with them and maybe want to be with them and not admitting it to yourself. Yeah, I just kind of read it as more of like, especially coming from her mother being like, this isn't like a woman's love yet, but like, I think it's going to be, you know, as they continue to kind of 
as she continues to grow up and stuff and they get to know each other more. And probably also knowing a little bit of the fact that like now that he very clearly to a certain extent has their her parents approval, you know, suddenly he's a much more viable option for those feelings as well, you know. Yes. So Last episode, the last time we talked about Little Woman, you asked me what my feelings were on Mr. Brooke and Meg and his relationship because you thought it was a little creepy, I think, because of the age difference. Yeah. And at the time, I said, in these few chapters, I don't have a problem with it. These 15 chapters that we're reading today is when I start to have a little bit of a problem with it. All right, lay it on me. What's your problem with Brooke? Okay, so... When we skip ahead <laughs> to, let's see, 2.33, we start to see uh, Brooke like, asks Meg to bury him, essentially. And she's still not sure. Or he, he confesses his feelings, and she's still not sure about it. And the author says on page 233, This was the moment for the calm, proper speech, but Meg didn't make it. She forgot every word of it, hung her head, and answered, I don't know, so softly that John had to stoop down to catch the foolish little reply. So we don't see it as much in these 15 chapters, but words such as foolish start being used for Meg quite a bit in her relationship with John. And also this whole exchange with John here again on page, she says she doesn't know yet. And he's essentially like, well, can't you learn to love me? And that feels, it's like weird how pushy he is, first of all. And then and then he's like talking about teaching her. He says, okay, so she says that she's too young to, to know what her heart is. I'll wait. And in the meantime, you could be learning to like me. Would it be a very hard lesson, dear? Not if I chose to learn, but... Please choose to learn, Meg. I love to teach, and this is easier than German. The idea of him teaching her comes up again and again, and it's just a really weird, icky power dynamic, I think. Like, this is the start for me where I start to not like Mr. Brooke with Meg anymore because she is always the submissive party in their relationship. Yeah, I agree. I think also that for me, this is where we have to broaden our conversation a little bit too to like what was societally the norm at the time. Because like this isn't just a problem with little women and like Megan Brooks' relationship. Like this is how lots of relationships at this time were not just written, but like expected to actually be, especially because at this time, relationships and marriages with rather large age gaps were still like the norm. And I think that this here is, I mean, yes, like, it's gross and icky in context of this book as well. But like, I think that this is one of those places where like, the book is reflecting actual reality of the time period. And like, that's even grosser and ickier to me, you know, that like, this is this is genuinely the norm of like what's happening and what's expected to be. And like, I think that in a lot of cases that like women were expected to be at the very least in kind of at least middle-ish class marriages and up 
expected to be kind of moldable and teachable and like able to be formed into whatever her older husband actually desires and things like that. And so like, I agree that this is definitely where Brooke and Meg start being icky, but I do think we need to at least give that context that like, this isn't just us being like, well, Alcott did this, you know, like this is, this is reflective of the time period, you know? It is reflective of the time period, but out of like, spoiler alert, out of the future relationships that form in this book, Meg is the only one with that sort of power dynamic. She is. And I think that it's especially interesting because it was the way that ladies at the time were expected to be treated and Meg was the only one who ever really wanted to be a lady. So like, I don't know what that says about Alcott's true feelings about Meg or like towards ladyhood or like whether this is therefore supposed to be like this thinly veiled, like condemnation of of that sort of ideology but like there's i agree with you that this is specific to to this relationship and like it makes me wonder what alcott's saying like whether it's actually supposed to be like well this is just how it is if you behave this way or you know like i think that there's stuff to dive into there yes and i think that we can get even further into it when we read the next 15 chapters because a lot of the content i want to reference is there but i also will say that Amy also wants to be a lady. So it is like, it is particular to Meg and only Meg and her relationship with this man. And I also think, I know that I'm living in a modern context, but like I'm in a relationship with a very large age gap. It doesn't have to have those weird, I I guess not very large, but it's a kind of large age gap. And that like, it does not have to have those weird power dynamics. And it's the power dynamics in particular that make me dislike it and then we start to see no i'm saying though that that expectation was the expectation of large age gaps at the time like that's what i'm saying yeah yeah it just makes me mad mostly because like it's not her mother has a lot of sway in in this sort of like her her mother talks a lot about like her housewifely duties and during their first talk their first fight i think joe or um Meg ends up going to her mother to talk about it. And like the way they resolve their first fight, I think ends up being kind of icky. I can't really remember because I'm not as reviewed on that chapter, but it's like, it's, it's the outside forces that are accepting of this relationship and like putting, putting the, the words foolish and and pushing them on to Meg that make me mad because the narrator does talk about Meg in those words quite a lot. And I do wonder if it is, you're right, like if it is Alcott making fun of that, because we already know that Alcott did not like marriage and did not want any of her characters to get married and is doing this apparently just to appease the fans. Or she at least didn't want Joe to get married. Yeah, I just, I feel like there's something going on there that, like, I can't tell. I think that going back and rereading the third part that we have set out here is really going to be the key to try and understand whether this is supposed to be some sort of, like, I don't mean satirization in the sense that it's funny, but, like, an ironic look at, like, this kind of relationship and expectations and stuff like that, or, like, what's happening, because it's, it is complicated, and it is gross, and I think also, but I do think that the point that you make about the outside forces is also interesting, because Aunt March doesn't like Brooke, and it's her, like, criticizing him that ends up pushing Meg to decide that she actually does like him, so it's, like, it's hard. I think that one thing that Alcott does well here is that, like, you, you can't make blanket statements 
minutes about anything that's happening in this book, you know, because there's always at least one or two things that are going to try and subvert your point, which I think from our perspective is occasionally kind of frustrating. But like, it is a smart way to write, you know, like, I think that you do see a lot of different thought processes and perspectives in this book about large issues facing women at the time like marriage like a career like facing poverty losing status things like that yeah Yeah. all right so we're going on a break here's a word from our sponsors good morning kelsey i've got to tell you about this regency romance i just read Zoe, you're finished already? Oh, I couldn't put it down. Have you read anything new? (laughs) Not since you asked me yesterday. That's all right. I'll just find something I've read before. But Zoe, haven't you read and reread hundreds of these books? Well, they're my favorites. Far Off Places, Daring Damsels, True Love, and Dukes in Disguise. (laughs) Since we both love these books so much, what if we made a podcast? Oh, but Kelsey... I insist. Well, all right. Let's do it. Join us, real-life friends and real-life romance novel enthusiasts, every other week on Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review, as we discuss a book from our favorite genre and what makes it steamy or tepid. And as the Regency period technically lasted only nine years, generally we're talking post-wigs but pre-telephone. So whether you're looking for a book to add to your to-be-read pile or you've read our choice already, we've got a little something for everyone. Read along or just listen in. You can find us on your podcatcher of choice. And new episodes coming every other Thursday. All right, we're back from our break. Yeah, a really big commercial break, you know. Our several day break. <laughs> yeah. Um, we stopped at chapter 24 the time jump and we get in this in this after chapter 24 we get a a a time jump (laughs) in this time jump meg learns how to be a wife and Lori is being a flirt at college and Joe is writing columns and Brooke is trying to make money and make Mary's and Amy goes through a series of art mediums and Joe starts writing sensational stories and Meg and John get into a fight. And I think that we talked about this a little bit last time, Maggie, but this mm-hmm. is when I stopped liking Mr. Brooke. Yeah, this, this is when you told me that you're less into it. Yes. So yeah, this is the start of it. Meg goes through a a time when she wants to make jam and Mr. Brooke like brings a friend over because she told him that he could bring anyone over at any time. So he doesn't like check with Meg first, but then the jam goes awry and there's this big mess and everything's messy and she's like all flustered and she just kind of starts I, I think being I think she starts being characterized as like this silly little wife. And we, we kind of talked a little bit about that before the break. It's true. We did. It's like the most stereotypical scene of marriage ever written, you know, where it's like the wife says one thing and it, you know, she doesn't actually mean that as like a carte blanche to bring anyone over whenever, but it's supposed to be more like, uh, like your friends are welcome here, but like the dude takes it literally and it's like, 
It's just. Is that a real thing, Maggie? I don't feel like, I feel like that's a silly thing. I think, no, it is a silly thing, but I think that it's like, uh, I think it is a stereotype of marriage and like miscommunication where it's like one person says one thing and it's like the other person takes it literally. I think that at its like base is a stereotype of what it's like to be married. Okay. Okay. I get that. I understand. Yeah. Or even to just, like, live with someone, anyone. It doesn't even necessarily have to be romantic, you know? Yeah. I think that the way they handle this is kind of fine. And it's, it's like, it's a fine, it's a typical depiction of people who aren't communicating correctly. But, yeah, what bothered me was just that Meg really is shown as the silly character. She gets trivialized, yeah. Yes, that's the word. That's the word I'm looking for. Was there anything else within that scene that you wanted to talk about or anything else that really stood out to you within the time jump? It's hard because I think most of it is like plot wise. I will say though that I think something interesting that happens in the plot or in the time jump is that Beth is a much more central character before the time jump than afterwards, which um, hashtag spoiler alert, but I don't even know if it's possible to spoil the story anymore, but Beth dies at the end. Maggie! I know, shocking. I'm going to cut that out. What if there's first timers? What if someone doesn't know? That doesn't happen yet. Well, but I want to talk about the fact that it for, like, they write her out of the story as, like, foreshadowing, and that starts happening at this point. I don't know if I see that as strongly. I feel like Beth has never really been a strong character. Like, she's one of the only story, um, one of the only girls that never gets, like, her own just her story yeah i'm not saying that it's that she's a less strong character but like she's talked about more by the other girls and thought about more and like at least in the first part we see her like come into her own with the piano playing and like with her relationship with mr lawrence and stuff like i feel like she has a lot more oh you're right she doesn't have as many chapters just like dedicated to her story but i think that for me she has a lot more of a presence in the first part and then in the second part, she starts to, like, fade away in kind of every single way. Like, she's mentioned less by the narrator. She has less of her own story going on. And even in the sense that, like, in the family, it's not that she's becomes less important, but she is talked about less. Because in the second part in general, and we'll talk more about the specifics of this in part three, but, like... The other girls really start going off and having their own adventures, like Meg's family and Joe and Amy both end up traveling and like Beth becomes just less the central point of their family than I think she was in the first part. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, she's literally fading away. That would make sense. Yeah. Okay, because Beth is the only one, and we'll get into this more in in part three, yeah, who does not have any major plot arcs, and she's the only one, even at this point, who doesn't really have anything anymore. Like, she doesn't even, she's not even really talked about playing piano that much. No, and I think something that's interesting about the change in Beth, even now, is that I think that Beth was the family glue in a lot of ways when Mr. March and then when when their mother left like Beth was the glue of the sisters in a lot of ways because she was so like cozy and homelike almost but then like Mr. March is back for the entirety of the second part really and like their mother is back and like because the family isn't in crisis anymore like Beth's role in the family becomes less 
I don't want to say less important, but like less needed by all of the girls. And I thought that that was a really interesting tonal shift. Yeah, I could see that. On page 256, after we get that time jump, there are new appearances of each of the girls that Mm -hmm. I think is really interesting. And I would like to read that. Sounds good. I think I'm right where you are because I thought that was interesting too. Okay, wonderful. Okay. So here it goes. As younger girls stand together, this is during Meg's wedding because Meg gets married, as we've mentioned before. As younger girls stand together, giving the last touches to their simple toilet, it may be a good time to tell of a few changes which three years have wrought in their appearances, for all are looking their best just now. Jo's angles are much softened. She has learned to carry herself with ease, if not grace. The curly crop has lengthened into a thick coil, more becoming to the small head atop of the tall figure. There is a fresh color in her brown cheeks, a soft shine in her eyes, and only gentle words fall from her sharp tongue today. Beth has grown slender, pale, and more quiet than ever. The beautiful, kind eyes are large, and in them lies an expression that saddens one. Although it is not sad itself, it is the shadow of pain which touches the young face with such pathetic patience. But Beth seldom complains and always speaks hopefully of being better soon. Amy is with truth considered, quote, the flower of the family, for at 16 she has the air and bearing of a full-grown woman. Not beautiful, but possessed of that indescribable charm called grace. One saw it in the lines of her figure, the make and motion of her hands, the flow of her dress, the droop of her hair. Unconscious yet harmonious and as attractive to many as beauty itself. Amy's nose still afflicted her, for it never would grow Grecian. So did her mouth being too wide and having a decided chin. These offending features gave character to her whole face, but she never could see it and consoled herself with her wonderfully fair complexion, keen blue eyes, and curls more golden and abundant than ever. Whoa, that was long. It was long. Actually, you know, I said I didn't have a quote for that Beth thing, but I think even here you start to see it, right? Like, this is the second chapter in part two, and, like, physically on the page, Beth's part is, like, a lot shorter, and just, like, even her description is she's clearly starting to fade away at this point, you know? Yeah, that is her entire description, that she's becoming less human. The book does a lot of foreshadowing for the thing that I may or may not cut out. (laughs) Um, yeah, I think it's interesting that Joe has to become more womanly. And I think that is also foreshadowing for the maybe moral of this story. But as we talked about a little bit before the break, I'm not quite sure if that moral is genuine anymore, or if it's the author picking at us or picking at her readers for all expecting a moral. I don't know. I did some research in some like scholarly sources because I was really curious afterwards. And this will probably come up more in when we wrap up the actual story. But I think that there are aspects of it that are genuine. And I'm, yeah, we can talk about that more later. So like I, because it's been a couple of days, as we've joked about since the last time we recorded, I've, I have new thoughts on it. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Yeah. I hope to uh, I hope to get into that. Um, yeah. I think what's really important here, though, is that Amy has grown. And I, I think it's interesting that, like, she makes a note of 
talking about Amy's less beautiful features, but how she's still beautiful. I think I think Amy's character arc overall is the most interesting, and I want to know what your thoughts are on it are in relation to this description of her. Yeah, I do too. I think that it's interesting because this reminds me a lot of other works at the time where like it was okay if you weren't pretty as long as you had the poise to carry yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a lot of what's happening here with Amy's description where like she's not traditionally pretty, but like she's come into herself as a woman and she like knows how to carry herself and things like that. And like those things become more important than just being kind of traditionally pretty which I think is really kind of symbolic of the way that Amy has grown. Because when she was younger, in a lot of ways, she was a lot vainer. You know, when she was 12, she was really concerned about how she looked and how her kind of entire family appeared and what everyone thought of her, which, like, makes a lot of sense. She was 12 at the time, you know? Like, that's... I think that's pretty across the board, the way 12-year-olds think. But I think that it... A lot of her character growth becomes for the fact that, like, she becomes more introspective and, like, slightly less materialistic and, like, concerned with what people think about her and things like that. And I think that that description kind of shows that growth that's happening internally as, like, her external kind of, like, features. She's just coming into herself, you know? And I would just say... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. It's just, like, she's still concerned with wealth and and privilege and how she appears to other people like she's not as genuine as say joe no i think that's true but i think that also as we see part two unfold her motivations for caring about those things become a lot more become different and i think it's because she realizes that she's probably one of the only sisters if not the only sister who's in a position to like really kind of marry well and help her entire family from that marriage mm-hmm. and so like her concern about the material things is i read it at the very least as being less about like just having them and being concerned about what people think about her and being a lot more based in the fact that like she can actually help her family if she if she thinks about these things there's a there's more of a motivation behind it other than just like i want it like she's in a position to help her family in a way that like the other girls just aren't anymore i also though i want to go back to that idea of prettiness and kind of take it away from the book a little bit because that is an idea that my grandmother really pushed in all of her stories my grandmother is a writer and um When she talks about stories and when she talks about people and characters in her life, she does use that idea of like, well, she wasn't traditionally pretty. She was a little plump, but all of the men fell all over her because she was such a lady and she just smelled so good and was always so clean. And so I guess like- Wow, Harmony, roast your grandma harder. (laughs) It's okay. She won't ever listen to this. (laughs) But as to like- I don't think she would mind either. (laughs) She would probably laugh. As two modern women, what is our take on that? Like, do we still, do we think that that's a good way of looking at the world? Like, is that a more fair and equal sort of way of talking about people and their attractiveness? Or do we think it's kind of shallow because it's still focused on attractiveness or... I don't know. I always kind of bristled at it because I hated being called a lady and I hated being told to act like a lady and I still do. So (laughs) like, what is, what is our take is like, 
young people today, do we still carry through with those ideals? I don't know. I think it's bullshit. I always have. I probably always will. I do think, though, that there might be something in the idea behind it of the idea that just because you aren't necessarily like a supermodel, how you choose to live your life in the way that you decide to portray yourself matters more than that, I think that the problem is that it's still like a it's like a consolation prize, right? It's like it would have been better if you were pretty, but you do this instead. And I think that if we were if it was really gonna be like a way to compliment someone without being like an asshole essentially, it would be more just kind of like away from appearance. It would just be like, wow, you have a real presence to the way that you carry yourself. And like, people really notice when you walk in a room and stuff like that, which like, isn't the only good way to be. But do you get what I'm trying to say? Like, I I think that it can be a less shallow way to look at it, but like not in this context and not in the context that you were describing either. Well, I mean, I think it was kind of, I don't know, I feel like this, this ideal that's being perpetuated in this book in in terms of Amy and then also in my grandmother was supposed to be like we hold these things up higher than beauty usually you pair it with somebody who like is really pretty but is like kind of trashy yeah in in terms of this weird moral and I also it going back to the book again it fascinates me because as we've talked about before Joe is supposed to kind of be like Alcott placing herself in the story a little bit like that's Joe is based off of Alcott, but Amy is really the one who flourishes and Joe is crass, but Amy, Amy does follow the rules and and therefore is like a lady and therefore gets to be pretty and gets all these good things that end up happening to her. Like Amy gets it all. And Joe kind of also gets it all for her too, but it's much less glamorous and I just, I don't know. I'm having a really hard time trying to figure out what the moral is here. I don't, I don't want to spoil it. I, <laughs> we, we can let that one slide for a second. Okay. Um, I think that the thing about Joe is that, jo- like, Amy gets it all in a very traditional sense, to keep going back to that word, in the sense that, like, eventually Amy is very pretty, and eventually she, like, gets married and has babies and, like, does all of that, and she marries pretty well, which we'll talk about more extensively in the third part of the series, but Joe doesn't want that. Like, that's okay. not who Joe is, and I think it's more about the fact that, like, Joe's eventual finding happiness and success in life meets what she actually wants and needs you know like joe wouldn't have been happy if she just like married well and had babies and like that was her entire life because that's not who joe is and i don't think that joe is necessarily we talked about this before but like joe is crass and like joe has a temper and like she's very boyish given the parameters of society in this time. And like that doesn't, while Alcott does point out her flaws, she does that with all of her characters. Mm -hmm. And in some ways she's even more generous with Joe than she is with the other sisters. Yes. So like, I don't think that Joe's necessarily the antithesis of Amy. I think that what makes Little Woman a nice novel is that all four of the girls, well, no, not Beth. (laughs) All of the sisters end up being able to live good and happy lives doing things that meet their needs. And like there isn't just like a one size fits all prescribed to all of them. 
we talked about it a little bit earlier this episode and the fact that Alcott didn't want Joe to get married at all. So I think there is just a little bit of that. But at the very least, the circumstances with with which all of the sisters, all of the sisters, all of the sisters like find their ending and find their happiness matches their personality a little bit at least, you know? I have another question about morals. So on page 272, which is literary lessons, we start seeing joe starts to kind of find her her writing stuff and um she's like asked to write a story that's kind of sensational on literary lessons joe is like talking about making a sensational story for money and her dad is mad about it and so then she tries to write like a moral story and it doesn't really work and somewhere in here there is I'm just confused about this whole thing because she doesn't want to write a story that's too moral and it confuses me because I feel like this story in of itself is kind of a moral story. Let's see. Oh, here, here we go. So there's a whole like one of the quotes is her father liked the metaphysical streak, which had unconsciously got into it. So that was allowed to remain, though she had her doubts about it. Her mother thought that there was a trifle too much description out, therefore, and nearly all came, and with it many necessary links in the story. Meg admired the tragedy, so Joe piled up the agony to suit her. While Amy objected to the fun, and with the best intentions in life, Joe quenched the sprightly scenes which relieved the somber characters of the story. Then, to complete the rune, she cut it down one-third and confidingly sent the poor little romance like a picked robin out into the big, busy world to try its fate. So it was printed, she got money, and then Joe talks to Marmy. She says, You said, Mother, that criticism would help me, but how can it when it's so contradictory that I don't know whether I've written a promising book or broken all the Ten Commandments? And so she eventually decides that um, she can't have spiritualism, which I've been relating to morals, essentially, and can't have too many sensational things. I think she just wants to, she says, she eventually comes to the conclusion that, I don't know, she comes to the conclusion that everyone's a critic, essentially. But eventually, I think, later in the book, she comes to the conclusion that what she's really good at is writing truth. And it's just strange to me because this book was published in like little periodicals and so she did get our author Alcott did get a lot of criticism for it and so I felt like this chapter was directly addressing that criticism but it seemed contradictory to me because this is a goddamn story full of goddamn morals and I don't know what to think of it okay that's all yeah I mean I do think that it's contradictory I think that the one of the lines that's a little bit down from what you just read is when Joe says, I wish I'd printed the whole thing The I wish I'd printed the whole at not or not at all for I do hate to be so misjudged. And that line to me really specifically just kind of like, like straight at the reader from Alcott's perspective, you know, like that you don't get to see the entirety of the of the story and what's going on. But I think also it has I think that does to a certain extent have a place in a moral story because like, you're right, especially today, I think we view this story as being full of morals. And I'm sure that to a certain extent, Alcott was like, 
not to a certain extent, like she was aware of like her ultimate messaging, right? Like, I think that part of the deeper problem here is that her credits were also contradictory. So like, you can do your best to write what you think is a moral story. And some people are going to agree with you. And some people are ultimately going to disagree with you. And like, I think part of it is that moralism and spiritualism, if we're conflating those two terms in this book are like, subjective you know and especially at this time period like you want to pretend like it's really strict and everyone knows what's what and like we're coming up to the place where like the victorian like very staunch morals were like gonna be pressed upon society and stuff like that but i i think that for me that's where it fits in here is talking about the fact that like moralism is is relative and so like that's what joe figures out to me is that she has to write her her own truth and like what she believes is to be correct and kind of just deal with it after as long as she's true to herself and what she actually thinks and like her own theories i think that that's the place where like joe ultimately finds that her writing flourishes uh and is the way that she's best able to deal with the critics i thought the end of the chapter was freaking hilarious she'll never be a genius like keats yeah, I was <laughs> screaming when I read that. Not being a genius like Keats, it won't kill me. Because clearly Keats's genius is what killed him. Like that's <laughs> it wasn't the tuberculosis, it was it was the genius. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. It just really made me laugh. I like your take on it, Maggie, and that makes me feel a lot better because I kind of need stories to have a moral and I choose that moral that like we all need to speak our own truth. That sounds a lot better to me and like works with my little feminist soul. And so I'm going to take it and now apply it to the rest of the book. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> um, the, other, the other things that happen in this uh, section that apparently Maggie has a different version of. Essentially, Joe and Amy go on some calls and Joe is really awkward and awful. And then... <laughs> And then Joe, who thought that someday she would get taken abroad with Aunt March, doesn't get to go abroad with Aunt March because she's so rude and unladylike. Oh, I, thought it was, I thought it was Aunt Carol. Oh, is it Aunt Carol? Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. But she, Aunt Carol visits Aunt March. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Aunt Carol is the one who ultimately... So, like, what happens in this scene is that Joe is essentially just, like, a dick the entire time and is just not a nice person. But she's with Amy, who's, like, really well-behaved and follows the rules and does all of the Amy things that we've already talked about. And so Aunt Carol, who is not someone they know as well as Aunt March, ultimately chooses Amy to go on this trip with her. And, like, I think for me, the, like, most bittersweetly amusing part of that whole thing was the fact that joe is genuinely kind of shocked that she's not going to europe like she doesn't understand that her (laughs) actions have consequences like Like, yes joe you were a dick (laughs) yeah like of course you're not fucking going to europe like if that's the only if that's the only knowledge that person has of you like of course they don't want to traipse you around europe for months on end you know yeah Yeah, because she even says during that time when um, Aunt Carol is there, Joe says something like, oh, I hate speaking French or something like that. Like, she's just so stubborn and seems as though she's not willing to budge or grease the wheels at all that they're just like, oh, well, she probably wouldn't even enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, it was just. But then at the same time, it was important. I think the thing that bothers me about that scene, as much as it is kind of like really funny also, but I think the thing that bothers me is that to me, it doesn't really fit in with 
Joe's character because Joe has been forced to go other places like with Meg earlier in the book and even with Amy and even when she's not happy to be there for the most part she's able to put aside her feelings because she knows it'll make her sisters happy and the thing is is that like everything that has to happen for Amy's plot to move forward and ultimately like the rest of the book happens because she goes to Europe and Joe doesn't yeah so like it just felt kind of like a cheap shot as a way to like get Amy to Europe while Joe wouldn't get to. I don't know. It just, it didn't fit in for me with her character, especially at this point in the story when she has, for the most part, kind of mastered her temper and things like that and is becoming a little bit more quote-unquote ladylike and stuff like that. It just, the timing of it to me, it just felt like a cheap shot to like make the rest of the plot work, you know? Yeah, it is weird because... We get mixed messaging about grown-up Joe during this kind of time period of her life where she is supposedly becoming more of a lady, but it also describes her as like being more hard, especially when Beth is sick. I don't know if that's this section or next. Next section. Next session. Okay, but there's some contradictory stuff going on with Joe. Yes. For sure. And I think on the one hand, for me as a reader, that would have been more... I guess easier to swallow if we had done a deep dive into the fact that like Joe is a quote unquote adult, you know, like they're all still in their late teens, maybe early 20s. And like at that point in your life, even if you're supposed to be a grown up, like you're still figuring yourself out. But I don't think we really get that from Joe's story. And instead, we just get this like contradictory mix, mixed messaging, you know? Yeah, which is strange because I feel like in the beginning, Joe is the most fleshed out character. For sure. And we do kind of, I mean, we're going to get to follow her a little bit more next section, but I feel like we are moving away from Joe's character and her character arc. Really, the entire last sec- like last half of this book is ultimately about Amy. Like, <laughs> no, it's true, though, you know? Like, the other sisters all have their things that are going on, and I will say that I think that Joe probably gets the second most, like, screen time, so to speak. Yeah. But, like, it very much shifts to yeah. suddenly this is a story about Amy, because, like, Amy is kind of saving her family through marriage. <laughs> like, it's very weird. Oh. Oh, is that why? I don't know. I just thought it was like, I don't know. I couldn't read this. I thought Amy's whole character arc, like, I love it, but I'm also just confused by why it is the way it is. But I. It's a wild ride. It's a wild ride. I think that's everything I have to talk about this section. Uh, Maggie, what are you reading? Oh, fuck. Uh, what am I reading? I am reading The Memory Police by... One second, let me look at the author's name. I'm reading it on audio, which is unusual for me. Ooh. Um, but it's it's a really good audiobook. Oh my gosh, just tell me who wrote this fucking book. No, I don't care about the narrator. Oh my god. Scribd just won't tell me who wrote it. <sighs> I'm reading a book called The Memory Police, <laughs> and it is by, let me Google it. It's by Yoko Ogo. It's by Yoko Ono? <laughs> oh. Uh, I'm reading a book called The, no, it's by, it's by, oh, okay. It's by a woman named Yoko Ogawa. <laughs> I was like, yeah. what? My favorite not beetle? <laughs> okay. I haven't no, read the past two days no. because what my are you schedule reading, Harmony? changed drastically. But I was reading Jonathan Strange, yeah, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And then a few days ago, I started audiobooking 
without knowledge that Maggie was also reading this, uh, The Ghost Bride, which is a book Maggie read recently. That's what it's called, right? The Ghost Bride? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, by Yankee Q. It's funny that you... It's funny that you didn't know that I was reading it because our, it was no, all over well, our I social started, media. I did it like the day <laughs> it was, you posted your first social media picture, like the day I started audiobooking it. Because I, I had forgotten my book at home and I was at a cafe and I think it was, I don't know. It might have been like last oh. weekend or the weekend before. I don't remember. I think it was last weekend. It might have been the day of actually. The point is I started it very recently and then you posted that picture. That's funny. Uh, what are you doing for homework, Maggie? <laughs> I don't know if I have homework for this episode because I feel like a lot of the homework I was going to assign myself like looking up more about the morals of this story and like just kind of doing some more general research about Alcott and stuff I did like between the two episodes that like the two halves of this episode so like that was my homework my homework is actually (laughs) going to be an article that i uh have been thinking up for that kind of relates i think particularly to this section about little woman and you know what happens when your like biffles your sister people move away and start growing up that's that's my homework yep okay all right are we done now oh 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 People, if you rate and review us, we will give you stickers with our logo on it. Um, What you have to do, anywhere in the world, you got to, like, send us an email or a Facebook message or an Instagram message, whatever. We're Rebel Girls Book Club on basically everything, except for Twitter, in which we're Rebel Girls Book One. Anywho, you got to send us a picture with your review, right? And then you send it to us and you send us a place to mail out the sticker to you and we will send you a sticker with our logo on it. Maggie, do you consent to this? I know we didn't talk about it. Okay. <laughs> I consent. Yeah, we yes, had five ratings oh, we for have a while. Five ratings now. Look yes. at us. So send us a Where review. Give us a picture because we can't always see reviews if they're done in other countries. Also, like you might be using an app that we're not familiar with and don't check regularly. So send us a picture of the review. Tell us where to send a sticker and we will mail you a sticker with our logo on it. And it'll be great. Yay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Anything else? Yay. Uh, come back for our next Little Woman episode, which will not be next week. Next week, we are talking about the... Are we yes, talking about... Well, yeah, wait, we're talking wait, about the sequel to The Witches of New the York. Title. I got the title. Um, just wait, but, just wait. Oh, she's got the title. She's Where? got the title. I thought I went. For those of you okay. who don't have the privilege of seeing Harmony right now, she's... Standing Whoop. desperately in front of her okay. bookshelf looking this is gonna for this be, book. Oh, fun to Instagram because it's super duper pretty. I just want to give you like plenty of um, blooper material bags. Okay. It is called yeah, there Half we go. Spent Was the Night by Amy McKay. Perfect. So that's next week's episode. And then the week after that, we're back with the last of Little Yay! Woman. So it's from chapter 30 all the way until the end. So that's what you can look forward to coming from us. We Bye. will talk to you next week. Goodbye. 
You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Oh, all the